Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. So our title for tonight is The Holy Love of God. The holy love of God. And just to maybe state in the beginning that there's a little bit of a tension like I just mentioned. We're going to look at the presence of God, the holiness of God, and how we maybe as a, a Western culture and a traditional Christian culture have become a little bit too accustomed to, you know, drawing near to God. The presence of God. Prayer. We, 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 we enter it so casually and we forget who we are speaking with, who we are drawing near to, who we are engaging with. And on the other hand, there's the redefinition needed of what holiness means. I mean, in our Western culture, in our traditional culture, we many times, you know, equate the word holiness specifically when speaking to God about, uh, to grumpy. Holiness, for some other reason, means grumpy. Holy means angry. Holy means displeased. Holy means I'm going to be confronted with that which I'm not going to like. And that's not the case. That's not what the holiness of God is. It's not a, a grumpy, angry, wrathful God wanting to smack everybody that comes past. So redefinition also needed of that. And for some of us, it will be, again, to look at the holiness of God and to repent and say, Lord, I acknowledge that I've been too casual. Too casual, Lord, when approaching you, Father. I forget the privilege of coming here tonight and worshiping the King of Kings. And for some of us, we even think of it as a sacrifice. Imagine that. We came and we offered up something to worship the holy God of the universe. No, no, no. What a privilege. To come into his presence and experience his goodness by the sacrificial sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And to again have that awe and that reverence. And for some of us, we're in the other side and having to acknowledge that out of that holiness doesn't flow grumpiness and angry. But when we respond in humility and repentance, grace and love flows out. It's a holy love. And to again not be so scared to approach God knowing that, man, I'm not going to live. God is going to reject. There's going to be no acceptance. It doesn't even matter. I try. So wherever you are tonight, open up your heart and allow God to come and shift. You know, we can speak to one another and we can inform one another about things, but only God can come and bring revelation to hearts. Turning the things that we hear into reality that we experience and actually live out. Amen. And we're going to read a passage of scripture in Isaiah 6, verse 1 to 8. And there's a lot of the story going on in the background and a lot of the context and the people mentioned in the specific passage of scripture. But what I just want to focus on is this idea of our revelation of who God is. Who God is. What happens when we are confronted with the presence of God. And in light of the holiness of God, who we are. So we often have a skewed view of ourselves and it's only when we are confronted with the Holy God that we realize how short we actually fall. 
You know, like there's a specific psychologist, I forgot the name now, but she's a psychologist for, uh, for Ivy League colleges, where the smartest people in the world go. And the problem that most of the people have when they go there is the thing that they thought made them special or made them stand out or made them better than is non-existent anymore because now there's a lot of smart people and even smarter people. And all of a sudden my justification doesn't hold up. And all of a sudden I realize in light of just a smart person how not so smart I actually am. Don't want to use the other word. And how much more when we are confronted with the holiness of God do we realize how short we actually fall. And then in that light, acknowledging who God is and who we are and how desperately in need of grace we are to look to the cross and the work of Jesus Christ and then to see the gospel, then something moves in us. And even now before we start, we can know whether we have a correct picture of those things. And that is by what? Our willingness to immediately obey and follow God when he calls. And the thing is, for most of us sitting here tonight, we know what we should do. Now the question is, okay, so now that we know, now that we know what God expects of us, we understand we're supposed to go and preach the gospel. We, we understand we're supposed to make disciples. We understand we're supposed to love people, love the widow, love the orphan, care for the poor. We know what we should do. But are we doing those things? How often and how immediately when God calls? You see, because the passage that we're going to go through, the last verse that we're going to read, verse 8, is Isaiah responding and saying, Here I am, Lord, send me. And it's Isaiah not knowing where God is sending him, for, for what message he needs to go and proclaim to the people, and for how long. Preemptive, unconditional. Here I am, Lord, send me. I can imagine God saying, Don't you want to know first what I'm calling you to do before you say yes? It's just like, No, Lord, in light of who you are, in light of what you've done. How, how am I going to reason with you? I'm going to debate when a holy God calls after I've encountered his grace. Wherever, whenever. You see, in the unfortunate contrast between Isaiah and the modern church is that we are slow to obey. Man, and we want to reason. It's because we have completely forgotten who God is. And one of the the people writing, you know, that the biggest burden of the modern church is to begin to recapture and to reclaim the biblical idea of who God is until it is once more worthy of Him. And not the idea of God that we've inherited from tradition and culture, but to go back to Scripture and not just hear the stories, but to experience it in reality. So let's read through it and see what we can learn. Isaiah 6 from verse 1 to 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, so this heavenly beings. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Who is me? For I am lost. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And after this, we see the message that God gives Isaiah. It's not a very comfortable calling. Very confrontational, hard words that he needs to go and speak to a people that have abandoned their God, turned to idols, oppressing the poor. And one of the kind of side notes that we also learn from the stories, the same in King Uzziah's case and also in Isaiah's case, is that the condition of the nation around you and even the condition of the people around you spiritually has nothing to do with your obedience and your relationship with following God. And just on a side note, you know, if that's you, if, if it comes to your spiritual life and your willingness to obey God and the revelation that you have of God, the only finger you can point to is to yourself. When there's a lack, or when there's a need, or when there's something out of place. We determine our walk with God. And even in the midst of a people that have maybe drifted away from God and in the midst of a nation that's going through chaos, we need to take responsibility of our spiritual life because the one we worship is on the throne. Nothing affects God. Nothing affects who He is. Nothing affects His plan. He's sovereign and He is in control. Amen. But it all starts here with verse 1. Some people going out, obviously. That is where it starts, verse 1. Got you. In the year that Uzziah died, it was the king in that time. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And there's a lot to say about King Uzziah, but I just want to focus on a certain piece because it illustrates and it explains to us what's about to happen in these couple of verses and the difference of approaching God with the right mentality and the right attitude. You see, King Uzziah comes from a line of two kings before him, his father and his grandfather, that were both executed because they were so corrupt. That is his inheritance. That is where he comes from. And obviously Uzziah in the beginning, not wanting to make the same mistake, when he was 16, he began to rule and reign as king. And you can go and read in 2, Chronic, uh, uh, two Kings from verse four, uh, chapter 14 and 2 Chronicles from chapter 26 if you want to have a bit more of the backstory. But really a good king in his early years. Following God diligently. And scripture says as long as he devoted himself to God, God made him prosper. Did a lot of good things. Served the Lord diligently. But the only problem is that somewhere towards the end of his life, he forgot who the God is that he serves and who he is in light of that God. And somewhere along the line, he thought to himself, you know what? I know that God appoints priests and specifically a high priest to go into the holiest of holiest, but I don't think I need a mediator to go between me and God. Man, I'm, I have what it takes. I'm not that sinful and considering my track record, surely God will allow me to just stroll upon into the temple and do whatever I want to do. And when you see Uzziah going into the temple to go and burn incense before the holiest of holiest, and maybe, you know, after that to enter into the holiest of holiest, where only the high priest could go once a year, foreshadowing who? Jesus. 
for shouting Jesus, the one to come that will allow us to enter into that place. But he thinking to himself, no, I don't need the priest. I don't need a mediator. In my self-righteousness, I'm going to go in. And the priest catch Uzziah in the temple and they tell him, hey, what are you doing? You're not supposed to do that. And instead of acknowledging and seeing what he's doing, he responds in anger. And he wants to continue. And scripture says the Lord struck him with leprosy. And the priest pressed him out and he also ran out at that point. Saying that I'm about to die. And the last 10 years of his life, he spent in isolation in a room away from everybody. Because God struck him with leprosy. Because he approached God in arrogance. That is... Uzziah, forgetting the God whom he was approaching. And then we see Isaiah standing at the same place where that whole thing played out. In the temple, seeing this vision of God. And we learn from him the right way to respond. When it comes to encountering the presence of God and how we are supposed to draw near. And we see as he sees this, what it is that stands out about God. And we read it here in verse 2 to 4. And it says, Above him stood the seraphim. Is this burning heavenly beings, literally called burning ones. Seems as they themselves are full of flames, set alight. And each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And you see, this is what Isaiah forgot. That he's worshipping this God. That he's drawing near to this God. You see, if scripture wants to put an emphasis on something in the ancient languages, there was no exclamation marks. They repeated something when they wanted to exclaim something. It's like Jesus saying, truly, truly, I tell you. Jesus is saying, listen, what I'm about to say is very important. Listen up. Truly, truly. When the Psalms win, there's this repetition going on. But there's only one thing in Scripture repeated three times. That is what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not love, love, love. Not grace, grace, grace. Not long-suffering, long-suffering, long-suffering. And God is all of those things. But before that, He is holy, holy, holy. Completely set apart. There is none like him. There is nothing that comes close. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, do we have this vision about who God is? Holy, holy, holy. And we can answer that question about how you approach God when you set time aside to draw near to this holy God. When you pray, when you read scripture, when you set time aside to worship, how does that look like? Do you just stumble into the room and begin to pray? Oh yeah, oh Lord, yeah, I am. Just flick open your Bible and begin to read. How does that look like? Just some fall on your bed or whatever the case might be and start halfway through, you wake up the next morning. How do we approach this God? Is there reverence and is there awe? Do we understand as a church who it is that we are approaching? Holy, holy, holy. 
And again, like I said in the beginning, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden when you're driving and you want to pray, you first have to you know, stop by the side of the road and do some kind of sacrifice to go on. It's not what it means. Jesus Christ was the sacrifice once and for all. But is there awe? Is there reverence? But the God that we are approaching. I mean, you can imagine this just reflecting on the Old Testament. The priest wearing a little bell around him. So that when he enters the holiest of holiest, firstly the bell can remind him that, hey, you are in the presence of a holy God. Better pay attention. And secondly, for the people outside, when the bell stops ringing, they know that, okay, we did something wrong and he's dead. We can pull him out now. He died. Because something was not sufficient. Do you understand who we are approaching? Now, like I said a couple of times when Scripture says in Hebrews 10 verse 20, you know, draw near with boldness to the throne of grace. Or so in Hebrews 4, it's not like how we understand it, you know, that God will be acceptance and we'll have this awesome feeling. The Hebrews are thinking, can we do this without dying? It's writing, yes, by the blood of Christ, yes. Yes, you can. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, yes, you can, without dying. But is there all? And is there a reverence? And again, you know, we might say, hey, but I haven't had that vision of God. He hasn't revealed himself to me in that way. And then we need to ask, okay, but why not? You see, where is Isaiah finding himself in this point in time? At the temple. Why do people go to the temple? To draw near to God. So this is a man intentionally and diligently seeking God. And he receives the vision of God. Scripture says when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. Hebrews 11 verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please God. For those who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He rewards those who diligently seek him. With what? With himself. Because that's what we are seeking. Amen. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, are we diligently seeking God? Do we want to know who God is? Do we want a revelation of who God is? Or are we satisfied with the stories that we've heard about him? I've heard God is holy, but I don't really want to experience that myself. I understand his grace. I understand his love. Theoretically, I know those things. Is that sufficient? Or do we want to... Experience it. And again, a very easy question to answer. Whether we really want to know God, whether we really want to pursue God, we just look at the last couple of months of our life. And that will give us the indication. Because if we do, we will. It's as easy as that. The things that we want to do, we will do. Is the intentional time set aside to draw near to God? I mean, for many people, if you just think about our understanding of Scripture, our experiences with God, the fact that we many times experience His leading and not. The easy question is, if you think about how much time you spend in Scripture, and you look at how much you know of Scripture, it will align. If you think about how much time you diligently see God praying, worshiping, fasting, and how much of God you've experienced, it will align. God is not hiding himself away from certain people. To the extent that he gave Jesus Christ on the cross. He did everything from his side. And scripture says, I stand at the door and I knock. To him who opens, I'll come in. 
But God is not hiding away. We are the limiting factors. And again, we might say, no, I'm, I'm not sure if I have experienced, or I'm not sure if I have the right view of God. I'm not sure if I've seen it in this way. And how do we test? By reaction. Did it look a little bit similar to what Isaiah experienced here in verse 5, saying, after seeing this, and I said, who is me? For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, when people encounter the presence of God for the first time, it's not, you know, goosebumps and laughter and stuff like that. It is, who is me? I'm lost. Surely this is the day that I die. That is what Isaiah was thinking to himself. Surely there is no way where I'm writing to people about this. I'm not going to retell the story. This is the day that I die. For I see the king. The holy God standing in front of me. There is no way that he's going to allow me to live. You see, and the interesting thing when we again take our traditional ruling ruler out, of seeing who's more moral and less moral then, if you look at Isaiah in our context, then there need to be a judgment about who's more moral and less moral. He would kind of be up there. In a nation that has fallen away from God, busy with all the wrong things, here's the prophet trying to faithfully follow God. Surely, man, he's going to make it. No, no, no. When he's confronted with the holiness of God, he says, who is me? Yes, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, but my lips are also unclean. There's no way that I'm going to live. And we see this playing out through Scripture. In Daniel 10, Daniel is confronted with the vision of Jesus. And he says, I became pale. My color left me, my strength left me, and I fell on my knees. And when I heard the voice of him who spoke, I fell unconscious on my face. That is how someone reacts when they are faced with a revelation of who Jesus is. Peter, in a less glorified state of Christ, when Jesus was on the earth, when he realizes who Jesus is, how does he respond? Lord, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Falls at the feet of Christ. Depart from me, Lord. I'm not worthy. When John sees, again, a glorified version of Jesus in the book of Revelations, what's his response? He says, when I turned around to see who is speaking, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's the response. Have you had that encounter? Have, has there been a point in time where you realized, man, if, if something drastic doesn't happen here, I'm done. There is no way. In light of that holy God, but you realize there is no good work, there is no good deeds, there is nothing. In of myself, I have nothing. If something doesn't come from somewhere else, there is no way. You see, and when we respond in that way, when we acknowledge our shortcoming, when we see in light of who God is, who we are, and we respond as Isaiah does, then out of that holiness flows love and grace. And see what Isaiah encountered in verse 6 and 7. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
And we read that and we think, wow, that's quite nice because we see the last two verses there. Sins atoned for, guilt taken away. But imagine this playing off. Imagine this playing off. You are faced with the revelation of who God is. You are certain that you are about to die. You don't know what's taking place is for your guilt to be taken away and your sins to be atoned for. That only happens at the end. And as you're standing there certain that you're about to die, this flaming heavenly being takes a coal from the altar and he approaches you. But you've stood still. But you've stood still. You see, because many times God approaches and he brings the coal and we don't sit still. We run away. Why? Because we don't know what comes at the end. We're sure that we're going to die. This is going to burn. This is going to devour. But imagine that playing off. And then we see those beautiful words in Isaiah thinking to himself, but how's that possible? Imagine him standing there hearing those words. How's that possible? And he's reflecting about the altar and he says, I know what happens on the altar. I know that the, the thing approaching doesn't live. The fire consumes, the altar devours. How am I still standing here? How is it possible that the fire didn't consume? Same with Peter, confronted, falling at the feet of Jesus, saying, Lord, depart. And what does Jesus say? Follow me. How is that possible? Daniel, a hand touching him, setting him, trembling on his knees and saying, oh, Daniel, man, greatly loved. How is that possible? John said, Jesus touches him, sets him on his feet and says, fear not. How is that possible? Reflecting on how am I allowed to live am I, as I'm confronted with this holy God? Why didn't the fire devour? Why didn't the altar consume? Because it consumed someone else. In our place. That's why. The sacrifice already made. And it's about him that Isaiah would prophesy. The reason that he was allowed to live that day. And we read in Isaiah 53 from verse 1 to 6. And it says. Who has believed what he has heard from us. A prophecy about Christ. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and he carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is Jesus. The one consumed in our place. You know, and, and even... When we consider, you know, the stories about Jesus or the, the, when we, we read the, the, the children's Bible, the pictures painted about Christ, that is not what's being described here. It wasn't this person beautiful in appearance and when people just flocked to know, despised and rejected by men. 
consumed on our behalf. There is not a single thing that you've experienced in life where Christ hasn't carried for us and experienced himself. The altar consumed in the fire of God poured out in Christ so that we can also hear those words, forgiven. Iniquity is atoned for by the perfect sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And for some of us, like I said, we need to be again confronted with the holiness of God because we might end up like Uzziah the king, forgetting about who God is and forgetting about who we are. And we're going to walk around looking to ourselves, thinking that we're something. And all of a sudden, one day we're going to walk into a wall of fire and it's going to consume the holiness of God as he opposes the proud. And we have to remember who it is that we are approaching. And for some of us, we see that coal coming. And the good news is, thanks to Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross, we can remain seated, allow God to come and purify. Because thanks to Jesus, the fire doesn't consume, it only burns away that which is not of God. Amen? And in light of that, in light of seeing that, how can we respond in any other way than Isaiah did? Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And the thing is, none of us have to wait for a call. None of us have to wait for a commission. None of us need to come and someone pray for us or, or come and speak to us saying, you need to go. No, Christ has already called. The commission has already been given. And it's this, go therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. All that is still lacking is for the church to say, here I am Lord, send me. Let's stand and pray. Yes, Father, thank you, Lord, that we can come before you, Father. And first of all, Lord, repent. Repent, Lord, of so easily forgetting, Father, who it is, Father, that we are approaching, Father. And for some of us, Lord, we, we need to just acknowledge again, Lord, how much we need grace, Lord. The grace that empowers, Lord. Like Estelle said, the grace that enables us to experience the glory of God. For how often, Lord, do we find ourselves at a place, Lord, where watching TV, Lord, or going on Facebook is more compelling than drawing near to the holy God who saved us. Oh, how much grace we need, Lord. And we just acknowledge that for a moment. How trivial things, Lord, earthly things, worthless things, seem more desirable than you, Lord. How much grace we need. And when the call comes, Lord, to go and to proclaim that there is a God who saves, comfort seems more compelling than the eternal salvation of the lost. How much grace we need, Lord. And as a church, Lord, we want to return, Father. We want to remember, Lord, but we want to be so obsessed with ourselves that one day we walk into that wall of fire that consumes. 
And when the test comes, Christ is not inside. Our feet are no longer on the rock. Come and restore, Lord, awe and a reverence and a fear of who you are. And with that, Lord, we also ask, Father, for some of us, our idea of holiness, Lord, have been so twisted, Lord, by culture and tradition. But we need to remind ourselves, Lord, and we need a revelation from you that it is a holy love, a holy grace. And when we respond, Lord, in humility and repentance, forgiveness is what flows from that holiness. A God that is completely other. And we want to respond tonight, Lord. In a moment, I'm going to ask us to come to the front, whether it's for someone to pray with you or just as a step of motion, but we need to move tonight. And whether you need to repent of viewing the presence of God as something trivial and having lost that awe and reverence for God, whether it is to approach God again and to say, Lord, I've been so afraid, Lord, because I forgot about Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. I, forget, I forgot, Lord, that, that holiness is a love, that holiness is gracious. Whether it's just to say, Lord, here I am, send me. I respond again, Lord, to the call that you've given us. I'm going to count to three, then I want us to move. Just come here to the stage and you spend some time with God, but there needs to be an action. And whatever it is, whether it's repentance, whether it's saying, here I am to the call, Lord, whether it's approaching again this loving God that wants to forgive as you lay down sins and concerns at his feet, whatever it is, let's respond in three, two, one. Let's move.